This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm John Betancourt, the publisher of Wildside Press. And uh, you recently posted a very interesting email to a Yahoo group that I've been a part of for a few years. Um, about how to do copyright renewal searches properly. Right. I think that's one of the things that uh, people on the Internet just don't know how to do. I see it improperly done and a a ton of stuff that's actually in copyright posted with the claim that it's actually public domain when it's not. Yeah, and I I totally understand why that happens because it's it's fairly hard to do. And, And the tools that you attach to that email a couple of uh, uh, files that you've cleaned up and two uh, links to other uh, sources for searches. Um, I didn't know about two of them. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd been relying on one and sticking to one era and then relying on some reliable sources uh, for for anything pra- past that point. Um I I actually see it quite a lot too, and you often from some, like, for example, the cold equations. You know this story, of course. Of course, it's a classic. Uh, Is it public domain or is it uh, copyrighted? Um, I've actually never looked that one up, but I would assume it is in in copyright. And I think you're right, and I think it's because the magazine itself was renewed. Is that right? That's right. Uh, Astounding. Right. Yeah. Um, Astounding didn't renew everything, but it seems to have uh, renewed most of its stuff. And I, I saw that on a, um, you know, a very high-end um, podcast magazine, uh, and they they said it was public domain. And I was like, I don't think that's right. I think I looked that up. Uh, so there's two ways that um, a story can be protected by copyright after its natural expiration. Um, well, let, let's back uh, up a little bit yeah. and say that after, uh, before 1963 and after 1923, there's a, there's a long block of time there, copyrights needed to be renewed after 28 years or they would become public domain. And there mm-hmm. were two different ways to renew the copyright. The publisher could renew it, especially for magazines, or the author could renew it, especially for short stories or books. And um, the copyright renewals for the magazines where a lot of the short fiction appeared have been very hard to find online, um, which is where a lot of the problems come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, For things renewed after 1950, uh, all the records are online at the Library of Congress. You can just, you know, type copyright search library of congress into google and will take you right to the web page so that's easy everyone can do that's the one i've been doing right uh but for anything between 1923 and 1950 you actually have to go and look in the paper records uh which luckily have been scanned they're just um hard to find online and um they've been digitized what i did was i took all the files because there were two periods every year where they gathered up six months' worth of records. 
So they're A to Z every six months between 1923 and 1950. I combined all of those into a text file, a single text file for magazine renewals and another text file for uh, the author renewals. And that's actually what you need to look at to determine if something is public domain. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, Weird Tales goes from like the 19, late 1920s until the 50s. And so some of the some of the renewals would be searchable on one database, and others would be searchable only in the more obscure um, the text file. Or, well, what I like about your text file is that it's it's corrected. So all the the misspellings that happen because of uh, optical character recognition failure uh, means that you actually can check a lot easier. The, the whole problem with, with these copyright searches is you're actually looking for something to not be there. So if you, if you search and you don't find it, it doesn't mean it's not actually there. Right? You just have to keep looking until you think, well, I've checked every possible combination of spelling on this. Uh, exactly. And so it's very, it's very, um, the, the onus seems, you know, very, it's a very heavy burden it's because I, I sometimes, you know, I'm checking four times and I think, oh, I'm fine. And then, oh, crap, there it is. I, absolutely. That, I think that happens to everyone who does copyright searches because there's, there's a lot of variations, let us say, and they weren't always transcribed correctly to begin with. That's right. Uh, authors use pseudonyms, and sometimes it can be renewed under the author's real name and published under a pseudonym. So it, it's tricky. Very tricky. Um, uh, I don't want to go too down, uh, far down this particular rabbit hole, but um, I want to ask the question because I found it amazingly stunning and I think very important. Um, false renewals. Have you come across any renewals that claim some story was published in some magazine, but actually it was not published in that magazine? Um, no, I haven't actually done that. I found, um, I think, erroneous renewals Okay, where uh, people have just assumed something was renewed, and instead of going to the Library of Congress, which you actually had to do in person, mm-hmm. they would um, just take the author's word for it that it was actually renewed and in copyright, um, This, sure. especially in the pre-internet days. So if you had a book published in 1970, uh, where the copyright had to be renewed in 1948. The author was alive and said, "Yeah, yeah, I own it. It's in copyright." Yeah, they would. Just, I renewed it. They would yeah. just put a, a renewal notice on it as if it were. Um, yeah, I understand that there's a bit of a problem with the Philip K. Dick estate, mm-hmm. where um, the heirs actually filed uh, wrong copyright dates on renewals, and. Um, Consistently. Consistently, yes. There's a, it's a pattern of abuse, let us say. Yes. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I want to point out that a, mag, uh, a book that I just um, uploaded the other day is, uh, had that exact situation. It actually says copyright renewed 1979. No renewal was found. And I, I searched and searched and searched trying to find that renewal, and it just didn't exist. The, the the original publication, you know, 1952, it was it was published. Uh, definitely, everybody agrees. But no renewal. But it says in the in the copyright page, renewed 1979. Although I think it should have been renewed 1980. Myself. 
But well, there's actually a, a one year window before mm-hmm. and after, so it's it's probably perfectly legitimate to have been renewed if it were renewed in 1979 as opposed to 1980. Well, it, still, it wasn't there. <laughs> I, I looked 1979, I looked 1980, I looked 1981, I looked for the author, I looked for variations on spelling. After after some point, you have to give up because, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that it's in there, but not spelled, you know, somebody just put the letters in the wrong order and nobody caught it. That's right. Or it could uh, be that the 1979 text uh, is actually a revision. That's possible, too. Um, but it it doesn't say that. <laughs> and so what, all we can do is, you know, put it out there. And, you know, uh, I, I posted a couple of things um, earlier this year. I, I don't know if it was you, but somebody in, in the Yahoo group uh, said, hey, this and this aren't public domain. And I was like, what? Oh, no, that can't be right. And then pointed to a couple other things. I'm like, oh, my God, everything's everything's broken. But um, that, that was not me. OK, <laughs> well, whoever it was uh, stressed me out a lot because I, I I try and be copiously careful. And uh, and uh, part of the other problem is is like because uh, like going back to the Philip K. Dick estate problem, there's 36 stories, I think it is that are uh, public domain because of false... Well, the renewals are false. They claim to be published in magazines that don't exist or in issues that don't have that story, what have you. Those those ones, I actually had to physically get copies of the magazines in some cases, not just the... Like, the ones that were digitized, I, I could find the copyright page and say, oh, it's not there, so... Right. Where, and find the one that they claim it's in, and oh, it's not in there either. So, you know, there's a, a bit of tracking down. I assume that this isn't, you know, just. I, I assume that there are more out there like this. It's just not in the stuff I've been looking at. I found a couple other uh, similar problems, but but they, they don't seem to be consistent abuses. Yeah, accidents happen. Um, but when you yeah. are getting ten, twenty, thirty. 30, uh, wonder. Yeah. Well, and because they never see what, what's so funny is they, they never got it wrong the other way, right? They never accidentally, um, claimed something was, uh, not <laughs> published in a magazine that it wasn't published in when it was perfectly legitimate to renew it. Yeah. So, um, a, a statistic, a statistician could probably do something very interesting there. Yeah. And, um, again, the, the, the Dick estate may be fairly unique because um, he was a, a pulp writer writing in the low-end magazines. And now, um, 20, what, 25 years after his death, he's um, suddenly a, a multi-million dollar Hollywood property. So there's it's, it's like 30, 35 years. 35 yeah, 35. Yeah. Um, He's now a Hollywood uh, uh, property worth millions of dollars, so there's a lot of money involved, and um, I'm sure that's yeah. why it happened. Absolutely. There was a lawsuit in California uh, regarding the last adapted movie. I think it was the Adjustment Bureau Adjustment Team. Right, which turned out to be public domain after they paid the estate a million dollars for rights. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. right. This yeah. is why copyright renewal searches are important. Um, 
you might want to claim. Uh, you might want to check on whether you actually have to pay that the, the royalties on that. We we also talked about uh, in our pre-chat. Uh, we talked about the Lovecraft estate. How well what wh- whether there is one or not. Um, the Lovecraft texts published in his lifetime all seem to have not been renewed. That's Do you know of any exceptions to that? Um, no. Yeah. The, I had, I the, what, what there is is uh, revised, restored texts um, that a scholar named S.T. Joshi compiled mm-hmm. for Arkham House, which are uh, somewhere between revisions and original works, you know, with hundreds, if not thousands, of corrections in stories and books. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the original manuscripts and the way Lovecraft intended them. So all of those are actually in copyright. So if sure. you want the definitive texts, you have to, to pay to use them. If you want the the bad, uh, corrupted texts, help yourself. So Well, my, my main thing is I want to see how they were published in those magazines, however bad they were. I, I, I saw somebody had been uh, selling some copies of Homebrew, which is one of those really early uh, 1920s magazines, and uh, there was beautiful illustrations by Clark Ashton Smith inside, and they had like a little uh, preview. Coming next month, uh, young, talented author, Lovecraft. You'll love him. Something like that. Um, apparently, Lovecraft didn't like the the <laughs> the magazine very much. He called it some sort of rag or something. But um, I think it's really cool to see those original drawings as they appear beside all the other stories and ads and you get a, a real sense of it so uh, I wanted to uh, ask you about how you you publish you you do um, ebooks and paper books is that right ebooks paper books audiobooks any sort of book and uh, the 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 way I think I spotted you originally was with the collection that it seems to be long-running or collected anthologies called the Science Fiction Mega Pack. Yes, uh, we've been doing a line of, um, I guess we're up to about 150 now, ebook anthologies all under the Mega Pack brand name, which I'm in the process of trademarking. Um, and uh, these are compilations of usually you know 25 stories or thereabouts. Um, the best-selling one we've done is the um, the science fiction mega pack series, which is now up to nine volumes. Mm-hmm. And we do a mix of um, public domain classics, uh, books by Wildside Wildside Press authors. We would like readers to sample, and uh, we license stories from um, friends, big names, uh, stuff I like that I think will um, add value to the books. And so uh, th- there are other mega packs like horror mega packs and uh, yep. fantasy. Uh, how, you said there was like 150 of these now? Yep, we're up to about 150. We're doing a golden age of science fiction line that's now up to nine. Uh, those are single author volumes. Um, like we've done Lester Del Rey, H.B. Fife, um, people like that. Um, we do uh, westerns, uh, western mega packs, horror mega packs. We do subject mega packs. We just did a mad scientist's mega pack. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot, and um, readers write in all the time suggesting new ones. So I think there's a lot of uh, 
a lot of different things we haven't touched on yet that people still want to read. Yeah, so uh, when, when assembling them, uh, do you, like, take 15 or so stories? How many stories, in a, or is it based on the length? Well, for the science fiction, well, they're, they're e-books, so length is not a, a factor at all. Right. Uh, we've had mega packs that are 130 pages. Um, we just did one that was 137 pages by uh, Eando Binder um, called the Space Patrol Mega Pack uh, back in the 1940s. In order to get a discount from the post office to mail comic books at a uh, magazine rate, they had to include a short story in every single comic. Right. And, I remember that. Yeah. It, it's actually fascinating who was contributing to them. Um, a very famous science fiction writer at the time named Eando Binder was doing a lot of books in uh, comics. Um, his brother, Jack Binder, was actually a huge name in comics and worked on uh, a lot of DC properties and other publishers, too. Uh, but he got Otto into it, and um, Otto scripted a lot of them for Fawcett, for the Fawcett comics like uh, Captain Marvel. And um, he also did for um, for one of the, uh, I forget which one, I think it was Wiz Comics, uh, 85 um, short stories featuring the same character. Every single one, two pages long, about um, 2,000 words, 1,500 to 2,000 words. And I put together, um, I've, I've actually scanned all of them and we're proofreading all of them now. And we're going to release them as three mega packs, um, as 25, 30, and 30 stories. And um, they're actually a tremendous amount of fun. They, um, they have a lot in common with uh, Captain Video, uh, Space Patrol, uh, Tom Corbett, uh, all the 50s TV shows that came out just a couple years later. And I have mm-hmm. a feeling that they helped influence that. Uh, you, you're pronouncing his name Binder. I, I always th- I always thought it was Binder, like binding a book. Yes, it actually <laughs> turns we, out it's Binder. Yeah, that's funny. Um, he he's the guy who wrote the Adam Link. Was that him? Yes, as well. Yes, actually, that's his real cool. name was Otto Binder, uh, but he and his brother um, were writing for the pulp magazines, and they got banned from Amazing Stories, I believe, and um, to. To get around this, they very cleverly stuck their initials E and O. Yeah, I thought that was what it would have been. Yeah, and of course, the the editor never figured this out. No. Uh, No, never. It's impossible. Uh, Going back to the same street address with the checks, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so that's how Eando Binder was born as a name. And he actually eclipsed them uh, individually. And Otto kept writing under that name for most of the rest of his life. Uh, were these attributed in the in, uh, of the? I'm not a comics expert of that era. I've only seen you know a couple hundred or something. Um, what what uh, do they actually attribute it to? Ian Doe Binder, because often the ones I've seen, they, it's just a story and there's no author listed. Right. The Fawcett magazines, um, except in the very earliest 1940 41 issues did run bylines on 99.9% of them. Um, half the time they were pseudonyms, but mm. um, all of the binders uh, were, in fact, published under his real name because I suspect they were trying to get some crossover to the pulp magazines where he was writing. Interesting. 
And um, among the other authors who published there was um, Carl Forms, who was a, an artist and author as well. Uh, Joseph J. Millard, who also wrote as Jack Martin. Uh, and um, what's his other name? Uh, Westbrook Wilson. Uh, I've been working with his son to identify some of his pseudonyms. Hmm. And uh, apparently they lived on um, uh, in Westbrook, New Jersey, which is where the Westbrook Wilson name and TN. Oh, I'm sorry. NJ Westbrook, because it was Westbrook, New Jersey. Pseudonyms came from that he used. What what what? Um, what do you, have these ever been republished since they were originally in those? Mag- I, I, I've never seen a story that was in a comic book uh, in another format subsequent. Have, do you think this is the first time these have ever been republished? I suspect so. Um, I actually heard from Richard Lupoff, who's a comics expert as well as a science fiction writer, after I published the uh, the Space Patrol mega pack containing the first 25, and his email said, oh no, I was planning on doing this. You beat <laughs> me to it. He was apparently having trouble tracking down all the stories. And it was a, a project that uh, he'd just been backburnering for years. Um, so other than that, I think most people don't even know about them. Um, the Bender's uh, Space Patrol stories are definitely aimed at a younger audience than some of the rest of the the comic stories, which I think would fly just fine in any adult market. Um, in fact, I just transcribed one by um, Joseph J. Millard, uh, about a Nazi saboteur uh, in the lost, lost in the North Woods, and the people trying to track him down. And it was definitely an adult, uh, adult story with bloodshed and all, and multiple murders. So, Sounds good. <laughs> but great, yeah. It was just what an eight-year-old comics reader wanted to read in the forties, right? Well, you know, uh, that's the time for it, right? Yeah. Well, actually, I've been reading online that the text stuff was something that everybody just skipped. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I would just skip it because I was there for the comics. But uh, they're also so brief that it, 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 it's, it's surprising, but it makes total sense what you say that, you know, that it was a dodge to, you know, get a cheaper rate because it feels like a, a break. And as soon as they, I guess that system of uh, require, requiring it being in there was, you know, lifted, <laughs> they they just dropped it completely. You, you almost never see anything like that in a in a uh, Silver Age comic or anything like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so with regard to comics, um, it works pretty much the same way. It's in the same database. Is that right? Uh, oh. The... Um, I don't believe... Well, I've been working with the Fawcett comics, none of which were renewed. Um, so I'm not quite sure what the other publishers of the, of the era did. Uh, but actually, you know what? They actually are, because I remember seeing some of the early DC comics um, in the databases. So yes, they are there. Mm-hmm. There's one other uh, other one that I think is very curious and interesting. And it's most famous with um, a case of, you know, how something falls into the public domain. Um, the most famous cases with movies like uh, The Night of the Living Dead, where the print that goes out doesn't have the copyright notice. After a certain point, that isn't required. Uh, 
but I think that point is like 1979 or 1978 or something like that. Yeah, 1978. So, right. So a uh, movie like Zulu uh, with Michael Caine is apparently in the public domain, and uh, the um, the uh, aforementioned Night of the Living Dead is the most famous case of that, where uh, you know a very famous movie, maybe low budget, but still uh, well watched, doesn't have this. Do you, do you know that this ha- this happens in paper books as well? Yes, things had to be published with a copyright notice, or they mm-hmm. immediately public domain. This is the case of a lot of fanzines from the um, 30s and 40s where good-meaning fans had no idea what they were doing and right. would just publish them because it's all about the words. Right. And um, this is how you got Maybe Bray Bradbury stuff uh, in the public domain. Right. Um, now, that is no longer the case, uh, I think. But I still see lots of people posting you know their their review of a latest TV show on their website, and then it says copyright me <laughs> at the bottom. That's no longer required. No um, copyright inheres in the creator, right? Which means that once you create it, once you put it in a fixed format, it is yours for your lifetime plus seventy years, right. at least in this country. Yeah, well, that's uh, we're, we are only dealing with uh, uh, the U.S. at the moment. Um, in Canada, I believe it's 50 years after the author's death. Right. So we were talking about how 1984 by George Orwell is public domain in Canada, but not yet in the United States. That's right. We have a few more years to go here. Um, do you do you, I know a little bit about this? I was wondering if you know much about it. The, there's another case of uh, the pirated editions of Lord of the Rings, the so-called pirated editions. You know about these ace paperbacks? Oh, sure. Uh, Don Walheim was trying for years to get the rights from uh, Tolkien's publisher, and he discovered a quasi-legal loophole where they weren't published in a timely manner in the United States, which technically put them in the public domain here, Um, so he published them, which is why the British publisher rushed to license them to to Ballantyne, which brought out... Mm -hmm the more famous versions. That ever- yeah, and, and with the author's approval, etc. Of course, of course. <laughs> All over the back of it. And, and you, you should feel bad for buying that other lesser Ace edition. But uh, I, I've not seen one of those Aces in, in person. But uh, if, if it forced people to start uh, publishing in the States, I think that's a really good thing because I think you know, my life would be a lot lesser if I didn't get to read The Lord of the Rings. Oh, I think everybody would. <laughs> it's one of the landmark books of the, the fantasy field. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, the, the copyright ended up getting restored for those with later copyright revisions. So anybody in the United States who thinks they've found a legal loophole and can now publish their own editions of Lord of the Rings, sorry. That's right. Um, but the original, uh, it, it's funny, those original Ace, they, Ace, they don't seem to be uh, very easily found. I wonder if that's because they are this, in this, this sort of... Well, um, I've, I've used to find them regularly at used book places. Oh, really? Um, I haven't seen any in a while. I suspect it's because they're not terribly durable. No, there's that too. Um, the ones I found, you know, always were very, very badly beat up. 
you know, it's one of those books that you will read several times, pass around to friends. And, you know, the, the lifetime of a paperback is about eight to nine readings. So, <laughs> Well, it depends on who's reading it, too. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, some of the books I, I would give to a student or something, when I get it back, it doesn't have any readings left in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> whereas well, when I finish reading care. one, yeah, it's, it looks... Again. Yeah, it looks much more like, uh, you know, it it was new. Um, at least most of the time, unless I drop it in the bathtub or something. Um, what What's this, the state of um, the Ace books? Those are all um, the Ace doubles, etc. Those are not generally renewed by the publisher, is that right? It's re- renewed by the author? Right. For books, um, unless it was work made for hire... They generally had to be renewed by the author. And and not many, it, it seems like not many publishers were doing that work made for hire. What percentage would you say of publishers of books and, and magazines did that? It seems to be sort of a scurrilous... Uh, I'm sorry, you're, you're breaking up. I'm having a little trouble understanding you. Oh, I was, I was saying, what percentage of the publishers used the work for hire, do you think? Oh, well... In science fiction, not a lot. It's very, very common in other fields, uh, particularly children's books. Mm-hmm. Like all the um, the ch- series children's books, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Bobsy Twins, right. Tom Swift, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, almost all of those were work for hire. Okay. So we're not going to see uh, a lot of cases where the publisher is renewing... Um, uh, I, I want to. I forgot to ask about this. Um, what do you think the case is for copyright compilation renewals? This is this is something that I, I thought was related to uh, work for hire, but it's not. It's completely separate. So uh, Analog has renewed a magazine. It says that this issue has been uh, protected by copyright. Does that extend copyright protection to every everything in the issue. Yes. Um, unless the rights were specifically returned to the author, um, some authors routinely requested uh, that all rights be returned to them after publication, and they got a signed letter from the publisher. Uh, unless that happened, the rights are assumed to be with the publisher to renew. And what... Um how would one know about this if one was not the author? Uh, well, you could go and read the copyright rules at the Library of Congress website, I guess. It's no, no, what I mean is, how would we know whether the author asked for the, their uh, rights back? Uh, you won't, because it's a private document between the magazine and the author. But uh, if the author asked for the rights back, chances are the rights were going to be renewed. So you would look for the author to renew the copyrights. If you don't see a renewal from the author, you have to assume that the rights stayed with the publisher and you check for the publisher renewal. Right. Right, because I I see some, every once in a while, I'll see something that is in, like I say, copyright compilation renewal, um, and that, uh, that presumes that Everything is copyrighted within it. Anything that was previously public domain is published within it is not protected because they they renewed it. Right. But uh, I've seen 
things published with uh, that I've seen things subsequently published by the author's estate that were not protected, but they're claiming. Uh, never mind. This is it's just so we can go down a rabbit hole of trying to figure all this out. Um, I'd rather talk about your Guida Montpassant. I saw you had a Guida Montpassant mega mega pack. Yes, that's that's one we did several years ago. So that th- that's uh, interesting because I um, I love Guida Montpassant and that uh, the translations are always hard to track down. Um, and some of them are good and some of them are okay and some of them are terrible. Um, how do how do you deal with translations? Well. Um with books like that, we are a victim of what's available that's public domain. So if um, if the only text uh, that that we can find that's 1922 or before uh, is a great translation, we're happy. If it's a passable translation, it'll do. If it's a bad translation, well, you have to live with it because that's what's available. Mm-hmm. I, similarly, uh, Jules Verne, I, I noticed um, there were some uh, very late publications in English of Jules Verne stories. And uh, I assume that the way the copyright protection works on a translation is exactly the same way as it would work on a, uh, a regular publisher's, uh, regular author's uh, copyright. Do you know if that's correct? Yes. The translator okay, owns the copyright to the work. That's what I thought, uh, because I was looking for renewals, not finding them, and saying, well, this, I'm getting the right name because this, this person's done other things, and these ones are not. So, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that. It's, it's, I seem to... I, I, I was thinking about talking to you all week, and I was thinking, gee, this guy's just like me. He spends his evenings looking up old things on copyright, and then hopefully he knows more about how to do this than I do. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. How many years have you been working at it? Well, um, it, it's recently, in the last, I'd say, five years, become an obsession. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, um, it, it feels like a gold mine that's uh, just out there to be found. And every time I think, oh, there's not this, this, uh, this, particular shaft is played out uh some something else comes up and uh there's an amazing mother load still down there oh yeah i've read estimates that something like 85 percent of all uh books and stories published in the united states um before 1963 are in, in the public domain you just have to check to see which ones and unfortunately it turns out that most of the famous ones were renewed but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's not a lot of good stuff still there to be found. Absolutely, uh, the um, the stuff that hasn't been renewed that is that you know is is famous is not the only stuff out there. And there's going to be uh, stories. Uh, one of the things that I I see a lot um, with regard to the weird tales that every time a new weird tales comes out uh, that gets scanned, people are very happy, including me. Uh, because I get to see inside, you know, that 1930s, 1940s magazine and say, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, reading the letters pages, you see that, you know, everybody thought Lovecraft was pretty great. But 
they also seem to be enthusiastic about a lot of the other stories in there. And I just think, well, it's funny because, you know, Robert Block, I heard of him, but what about this guy who's only got the one story in that, in that issue? Uh, who's, who gets to read those if we don't uh, find him out and track it down? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, and Weird Tales is an interesting case because it had three different publishers, and um, of the three of them, none of them did a very good job at renewing the copyrights. So you have you know blocks of some years where they were renewed and blocks of other years where they weren't. But again, it was such a famous magazine and had so many writers who became famous that half the contents of issues that were not renewed as a whole had author renewals for them. So you really have to be meticulously careful with with the stuff from Weird Tales. The, the other uh, person who was in there, uh, Ray Bradbury's in a lot of Weird Tales, and I found hi- uh, researching his stories incredibly difficult because he, he seemed to change the name every time he published something. Yes. It would change every time, and As I thought... them. Oh, I found. I thought I found a. I thought, oh my god, nobody's seen this story before. It's one. It's only been published once, and then I started reading it. Wait, wait a second, I've read this, and it was just another name for a story that, uh, you know, has been well published elsewhere. Yeah. How how uh, how often is, is Ray Bradbury sort of unique in that? No, no. Think? What happened was, um, pulp magazine editors took a lot of liberties with with what they published. They would change titles. They would change author bylines. They would um, cut words to make columns fit because you didn't want the story running three lines onto the next page, so you cut out a paragraph earlier. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a lot of editorial meddling. In fact, I even heard about um, one uh, particularly great author that the editor loved I think it was at Amazing Stories, but he had to make changes or the the boss would be unhappy thinking he's not doing his job. So what he would do is take his red pencil, cross out lines of text randomly, <laughs> and then write exactly what he had crossed out above it for the typesetter. Pretty crazy. He's just, he's just trying to keep his job. Exactly. Make work project. But he respected the text enough not to change it. But that wasn't often the case. You know, when you're expected to make your edits or you're going to be fired for not doing your job, you obviously make edits. Right. Well, I, 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 I'm just so grateful for the uh, those two text files. I, I was one. I wanted to reaffirm that I can get your permission to post them on. My website to get a little bit more publicity. I'll attribute that to you. Um, uh, absolutely. But, or, or if you want, you can post links to my website because I do update them as I make changes. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely want to do that as well because, uh, as you say, you know they're annotated, right? These are these are the fixes, and when you see a mistake and you've you've, you've uh, fixed it, that's so helpful. Um, it's like. I can now go and look at things that I couldn't look at before and and find out about all of these these works and whether they're they're uh, going to be in the public domain at some point. 
How how long are, how long are we going to have to wait for the 1930s that are still stories from the 1930s that are still um, in copyright? Well, till the 2030s. Yeah, it, it's going to be a long time because copyright is now frozen in this country. Nothing new can enter the public domain while we wait for um, the new laws to creep into effect. And the new laws are going to put corporate copyrights to 95 years, which will protect the Walt Disney Company's uh, Mickey Mouse short cartoons. Yeah, that, that's why Disney forced these laws through with their puppet, uh, Sonny Bono. They probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, um, he worked on their behalf to protect the mouse. And um, so corporate copyrights have been extended to 95 years, which is ridiculous. And uh, we're moving to meet the the international norm of life plus 70 years for authors. But it's going to be quite a while before all these new rules take effect. And uh, till then, only things that are published in 1922 and before by anyone anywhere else in the world are public domain in the United States without question. Hmm. Uh, British authors, foreign authors, anything after 1923, including 1923, is back in copyright. So you cannot touch British authors, even like um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who is public domain everywhere else in the world. His later works are still in copyright in the United States. Thank you, Sonny Bono. Hmm. Well, uh, thank you uh, for talking with me. It was enlightening, and uh, I hope people go check out your website and start downloading some Mega packs. Thank you. I, I hope they do too. Oh, um, and uh, next year when those Mac Reynolds uh, books come up, I I have a couple of ones I wanna I wanna talk to you about promoting as audiobooks because um, I think Mac Reynolds is uh, this is one thing we never we didn't talk about. You're, you're buying author estates, yeah. uh, obviously not willy nilly, but um, when when you know the great grandchildren or grandchildren or great nieces or whoever it is are looking for uh a way to deal with these emails that they get about hey can i get permission to publish um how how do you deal with that um well a lot of the estates i've purchased have not been let me back up a little bit uh in the last couple of years i've started purchasing um the estates of um, science fiction authors who passed away, and um, I purchased the estates of Mac Reynolds, uh, Lester Del Rey, um, Carl Jacoby, um, some Weird Tales authors like Everell Worrell, uh, some 50 science fiction writers like H.B. Fife, uh, a bunch of others. Um, and initially I started doing that in order to get access to short stories because it's cheaper for me to own the estate and reprint these stories in these mega packs that I'm doing than it is to license the stories one at a time. You know, if you license 50 stories at 50 bucks each, that's suddenly $2,500. Uh, if I buy the estate, I own it outright. I can do uh, whatever I want with the stories in the books. And it, it was actually an econo- economy move on my part. Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually worked very well because 
not only have I uh, made some great friends through the estates, I, I talk with them all the time. Um, uh, for instance, with H.B. Fife's estate, I found that uh, one of his cousins had two large plastic cases under the guest room bed full of his unpublished manuscripts. Oh, cool. Very cool. Um, I've been going through them, uh, reading them, and some of them were, of course, his first attempts, which John W. Campbell rejected for astounding because they were just terrible. But he went on and you know, persevered and became a pretty good writer. Um, but I also found um, he had a complete historical novel, which is pretty good. Um, he had um, a draft of a mystery story, which I ended up rewriting and finishing, and I just sent it off to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and under a joint byline, and I think uh, as a good chance of selling somewhere. Uh, and I found just you know, random stories by uh, him and other people that I think are good and just didn't fit the market at the time, but they deserve to be published, and I'm going to be reprinting those. So it, it, it's like um, uh, archaeology for writers in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, fortunately, I, with Mac Reynolds, I discovered that um, after his widow died, as many as 37 unpublished novels were thrown out. Oh my God! And who knows what else? So it, it you got to get into that landfill. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was a long time ago, and I think the rats have since made off with everything. I hope that's. But I hope that's a, not true. I hope some sort of anaerobic uh, protection is has preserved them for subsequent generations. Yeah, but uh, and um, Everell Worrell, who I mentioned, was a Weird Tales author. Uh, when I bought her estate, we got something like 30 unpublished manuscripts. Um, some were science fiction, some were weird fantasy, and she kept writing uh, after Weird Tales folded, and some of these would have been perfect for Weird Tales, and she just couldn't find a new market. So hmm. um, we're going to be working to bring those out at some point. So this is maybe a, a difficult question or... A question you don't want to avoid, I, but I, I'm very interested in this. What is an author's estate worth? I, it's obviously based on you know how much uh, they published and you know how famous they are, etc. Um, but are we talking hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of dollars? <laughs> what are we talking about? No, it's not tens of dollars. It, it's usually well into the thousands. Um, the uh, you know, it, it's a balance of uh, how active is the estate? You know, is it still earning money? Um, mm -hmm. Since the, um, not my deal, but the R.A. Lafferty estate, um, which is primarily short stories, sold for $70,000. Wow. Um, I was uh, trying to buy, planning to try to buy the estate of a major science fiction author, and I wanted to offer a quarter million dollars for it. And uh, I finally decided it was worth that, but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> right. I have some money, but not that much. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a balancing act of what you think you can earn from it, what the estate is presently earning, and you meet somewhere in the middle. Right. So when you're putting, putting these collections out, uh, you've got a lot of competition uh, with e-books and such, but... Because uh, am I wrong in thinking you're primarily pointing at ebooks now, or are you you obviously Wildside is old enough that it's 
it predates ebooks. Is that right? Oh yes, we've been around since the eighties. Yeah. Um, so we have you started as paper books, and you're going into you've been in ebooks for a long time. Is it what, what's happening? Is it shifting? Um, well, we have fourteen thousand paper books available in print. Fourteen thousand different titles. Wow. And we have about eleven hundred ebooks. And the e-books oh. earn four times as much as the 14,000 paper books. So you wow. can see where the market is going. I can see where it's going. And uh, obviously you were talking about audiobooks as well. Um, I think that people have been, uh, you know, I've been an audiobook guy for uh, several, uh, de- a couple of decades anyways. Um, I think that because of the way Audible uh, made it easier for people to listen to audiobooks that digital uh, mp3 you know versus the cassettes which we were back on in the 80s and cds which we were on for too long um i think that the audiobook is is uh, a huge market i know that some authors like lois mcmaster bujol uh they she has stated that uh the majority of her income comes from the audiobook end which i think is astounding but um i can see it People do love series, and she's got a lot of series. Um, how how big a percentage of your your company is is focused on audio? Uh, it's a small percentage. We've done about two hundred audiobooks. That's that's a large number of audiobooks. <laughs> yes, um, yes, and no. Um, we've only had a couple that have taken off in a big way. Uh, I view it as. Um, less of a value added as much for authors as anything else because that's one more thing we can bring to the table when we deal with authors. We can do it mm-hmm. in audiobook, we can do it in ebook, we can do it in paper books. Um, and I think that uh, that's something authors appreciate. Um, what what uh, One last area I think we should go into is um, because Amazon owns everything, um, what what would you like to see? would you like to see more diversity or is it nice to have uh you know just very simple way to get to market well if if amazon would be a benign dictator forever i would be happy but one wonders what will happen when all competition is gone when they you know, the sole market and they can dictate all terms um i suspect things would not be as good for uh, content creators and owners as they are. No. Um, the, it, I mean, th- that's kind of what we're seeing, right? Is, is the transition phase. Uh, well, that's, that's my assumption looking out. I, I know their fight with um, Hachette uh, has been kind of public, but um, have you felt any muscle on pricing? Uh, obviously, you're working with their pricing system uh, with e-books. Um, well, we, not- we actually have... Um, they are demanding a higher and higher cut of the ebook sales. So yes, as they lock in the uh, everybody into Kindles, there's well, I, I can't argue with the sales figures because when I see them, eighty-five percent of our sales are Kindle through Amazon. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, what about fifteen percent? That's Apple and uh, Nook and Kobo. And then, of course, right. there's a couple of bucks to all the other little stores and our own little store. Right. 
I, I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure how to how to get out of it. Uh, I'm just busy reading all these stories. I don't know how to solve this this uh, giant um, oh, it, antitrust situation. Oh, it, it can't be solved. Um, it's like Highlander, and in the end, there will be only one, and it's going to be Amazon. I see that coming. Uh-oh. And as soon as Amazon um, broadens the Kindle to include a seamless EPUB integration uh, and Kindle files and EPUB files and um, web files and HTML files, it doesn't matter what you buy. Everything goes seamlessly into the Kindle. Uh, I think they win. And it's coming. Well, th- thanks again for talking with me um, until the apocalypse comes. Um, I hope you do good business. Thank you. Thank with you our new talking. overlord. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 